This is How Prayer Works, Part 1. I'm going to talk about the essence of what prayer is and what it's supposed to accomplish. We'll do that over today and tomorrow. First of all, we have to define what prayer is. You have a prayer book, a fat, hundreds of pages long book. Most of the contents of the prayer book is not prayer. In fact, truth be told, it's not a prayer book. In Hebrew, it's a sidur. Sidur means organizer. It means lots of things are going on there, and this book organizes them. Prayer in Hebrew refers to the Amidah, the Shemana Esrei, the part you say, standing with your legs together, facing the next holiest place. Which is quite short. Only that is prayer. The Shema is not prayer. Psalms are not prayer. The morning blessings are not prayer. When the Shulchan Aruch talks about Hilchos Tefillah, the laws of prayer, only the Shemona Esri is being discussed. Nothing else. So that's what we're going to talk about. Now secondly, the Shemona Esri divides into three pieces. It starts with praise of God. It ends with gratitude, thanksgiving to God. And in the middle you have petition, asking God for things. That's true in all prayers, whether it's weekday or Shabbos or holidays. All of them are broken into these three sections. And in particular, in the weekday prayer, the lion's share of the prayer is the middle section, where we're requesting things from God. Three blessings at the beginning are praise. Really, one at the end is thanksgiving. There are two others there that are part of the ending part. But the middle, in our case, 13, are requests from God. Not only is the request section the biggest section, but the purpose of the whole exercise is to make requests of God. That's why you come before him in prayer. Praise is simply a matter of form. You come before a king and you want to ask something of him. You have to show some recognition of who he is and who you are and how you relate it. And you should show gratitude for what you receive. And yes, that was present tense, not past tense. But the reason you come is to present your requests of God. So to understand prayer altogether, we must understand what does it mean to ask things of God. And here there is a classical paradox raised by the Sefer Ikorim 500 years ago. I'm asking God for X. Now, this paradox can be expressed in two different ways. There's a simplistic way and a more sophisticated way. The simplistic way is this. I'm asking God for X. Either I deserve X or I don't. If I deserve X, then God being just, will give me X, even 
if I don't ask for it. On the other hand, if I don't deserve X, then God, being just, won't give it to me, even if I do ask for it. That means my asking can have no effect on the outcome. It's totally irrelevant to the outcome. Now, a petition is designed to change the world. You ask for something because you think that by asking, you can change the outcome. Anybody who would be guaranteed that his asking couldn't have any effect, he's mailing a letter to the governor and he's informed that all the mail that day is going to be trashed. It would be absurd to mail the letter to the governor under those conditions. I'm going to get to the governor. The Torah never requires us to do something absurd. Never. So, in order to make a request, I have to believe, now let's understand this carefully, I have to believe that it's at least possible that my request should make a difference. I don't have to have a guarantee. Very little is guaranteed in life. When you do surgery, you do it not because it's guaranteed, but because it's possible it will make your life better. Hopefully it's probable it will make your life better. But I at least need the possibility. If I were convinced that my petition couldn't have any effect, then it would be absurd. And as I said, the Torah never requires us to do anything that's absurd. So, the question is, why should I believe that my request could have any effect? As the first way of putting the paradox puts it, it can't have any effect. Because, um, either I deserve it or I don't. And if I deserve it, I'm going to get it without the request. And if I don't deserve it, I'm not going to get it even with the request. In neither case does the request have any effect on the outcome. So uh, he says, unless the prayers make you deserve it or not. Okay. In a way, that will be the essence of the answer. That will be the essence of the answer. That's a, that's a very good remark. But I'll come back to that when I... When I um, you're right. In logic, that has to be the answer. That has to be the answer. You're, you're quite right about that. I'll, I'll come back to it, elaborate on it. That's what I, that really the main subject of what I want to talk about. The other way to put the paradox, a little less simplistic, is to say um, that God decides what to give not only on the basis of justice. It's not that simple. It's not that simplistic. There may be all sorts of other factors taken into account. How it will affect other people and investment in your future and mercy. But the question will still be relevant. Why should I think that my requesting will be one of the factors that God will take into consideration? What, so to speak, leverage would my requesting have? In other words, we have to picture God in the following stance. Okay, shall I give him X or shall I not? Let's see. If he asks, I'll give it to him. And if he doesn't ask, I won't give it to him. At least sometimes God is in that position. That will give me hope that when I ask, maybe that's the position I'm in. Why should God ever be in that position? What could there be in the petition that would incline God to say, well, since he asked, therefore, I'm going to say yes. But had he not asked, I wouldn't say yes. Now, there are different kinds of petition. Different purposes of petition. Such it can mean different things. And based on each meaning of the petition, we will have an answer to this question, why God would have an incentive, so to speak, to want to re reply to it. Let's start 
with the lowest possible level of petition. Dear God, please give me a 2007 Porsche. Why? Because I like nice cars. I really enjoy nice cars. You know, um, leather seats and quadraphonic sound and climate control and GPS and, you know, not to mention how many hundreds of horsepower and, you know, roaring out from the light and uh, speeding in the, in the desert. And I just like good cars. So please, God, give me the car. Why? Because I want it and I'll enjoy it. Solely for my pleasure. Imagine a request like that. Does that request have any spiritual merit? Try. <laughs> well, you could say. Um, well, I mean, they you know they use it for you know a lot of they use this for a lot of things. That, you know, they say uh, if you know if uh, if I go out for uh, you know an hour a day and it's going to relax me enough to you know. Let I me study see. Torah, you okay, know. the suggestion is that I could relax in the car and that could help me study Torah. I hear, I hear, but imagine that that's not part of my my intent. That's not, huh? Oh, what about that? At least you're acknowledging God. You know where it's coming from. There are lots of people who won't do that. They'll polish up their investments in the stock market. They'll uh, you know, try to work extra hours. They're not going to ask God for it. Can't we imagine God looking down and saying, okay, it's true, it's a low, selfish request. doesn't show any dignity or elevation, you know, no, no nobility of character. But he's asking me. He knows that I'm running the world. I have the keys to the warehouse. That's worth something. Suppose I never answer him. Maybe that recognition will atrophy and uh, come to a point where he won't ask anymore. Certainly, on some occasions, I might want to reinforce that attitude. See, already, you see what we're doing, we're answering your question the way you said, the request itself could be a reason for God to say, yes, I want to give him what he's asking for. Again, remember, I won't talk about could be doesn't have to have a guarantee. But it could be, even when the request is that low, that selfish, that, that uh, particular, yeah. But you see, even people who, even people who don't, uh, you know, who don't do, you know, who don't do actions or don't, you know, think about God, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's second nature for, you know, secular people to, you know, to, you know, to say, you know, God help me, and, you know, they don't. Okay, you say that it's, it's second nature for people to say, God help me, even if they're secular people. I'm not talking now about words. I'm talking about meanings and intentions. And uh, I, I must tell you that I'm a little, a little worried even about religious people who use certain phrases over and over again. I don't know how much thought goes into the, you know, if God wills and so forth and so on. I think we could all work, stand to tighten up our seriousness and our intentions and the way we speak. But I'm not talking about words now. I'm talking about an intention where I'm asking God to help me. But my purpose is totally selfish. Even there, there is a value to what I'm doing, a spiritual value, which God might want to reinforce, so there would be some reason for God to answer. Though, on many occasions, he may say, that's a reason, but I have other reasons that are more important than not answering and not, not uh, give what I'm asking for. But at least it's some reason. And that means that Asking is not this theater of the absurd where I'm doing something which I know can't have any effect. It's not that, it's not that drastically um, uh, out, of, out of bounds. Okay? One step up from there, 
is where I ask God for something in order to be able to serve him. I'm asking him for a means to serve him. I think this level is one to which everyone can strive and everyone ought to strive so that as you pray in the and say, God, give me wisdom and God, give me the ability to finish my tshuva and God, give me forgiveness and uh, God, save me from my enemies and God, give me help, God, give me support and so on and so on. At each point, you could imagine yourself being stopped. Why? You're asking for this. What are you going to do with it? And having a ready explanation. Yes, I need this because it's going to help me serve you. And restricting one's petitions to those items that one could say, I need them to be able to serve you. I'm in bed with the flu. Please, God, get rid of my fever. And, you know, why? Well, the day after tomorrow, I have this doubles tennis match. You know, I just, I just don't want to miss it. You know, please make me. Oh, wait a second, wait a second. Well, that wasn't the right reason. Uh, let's see. Oh well, um, I have to visit my uncle in the hospital, and I have to teach in yeshiva, and I have to daven in shul like he commanded us to, and I have uh, things to do with my family, and I'm like you know, for each thing that you ask for, it should be the purpose of as a as a tool to serve God. Now. Let's ask the same question again. Would God have a reason on the basis of the request? Would he have a reason to give it to me? Here I think it's, it's much more obvious. Let's think about reinforcing my attitude. My attitude is, I'm in the world to serve God. That's what I'm expressing. And I'm asking for tools to, to serve God with. Surely God would want to reinforce that. I mean, that's something which it's, it's obvious that he would want to from time to time answer so that I would be encouraged to continue to express that attitude. In addition, by requesting something, we are preparing ourselves how to view it when it comes. We're preparing ourselves how to experience it when it comes. If you request and it comes, then you have set yourself to receive it as a gift from God. And if you receive it as a gift from God, you're more likely to use it appropriately than not. So here is an even deeper answer to your question. The act of prayer itself has an effect on me. It has an effect on my focus. It has an effect on my... As my wife always says, when the event takes place, you frame it. You put it in a certain context. And here, when the thing comes, I'm preparing a frame. This is a gift that God gave me. And it will then cause me to feel a debt of gratitude. And that will be a strong impetus to use it in the appropriate way. So, the question, why should God take account of this petition? The answer is on the surface. That God wants to encourage the attitude and God wants to reward those who have prepared themselves in this way. This idea helped me to understand a passage in the Talmud which really disturbed me when I first read it many, many years ago. The Gemara says, why were the patriarchs and matriarchs barren? Why they didn't have children? Because God desires the prayers of the righteous. He desires the prayers of the righteous. Now, I don't know if you've had any contact with infertility but it is an excruciatingly painful condition. 
for the husband, for the wife, and then the medical tests, which are painful and and uh, degrading, demeaning, and the hopes, and, and even with a great deal of expense and a great deal of effort, only one in four succeed. So you go month after month after month. It, it's terrible. And a lot of suffering involved. And here this Gemara says, God desires the prayers of the righteous, and that's why he makes them infertile. When I first heard that, I thought, God enjoys their suffering, their moaning, their groaning, their sighing, their tears. I mean, what kind of God is that? Of course, my own grasp of Judaism was very primitive at the time. What I've told you now is a partial answer to that question. As they pray, they are, they are orienting themselves to use, to dedicate that child to the highest purposes when he comes. And that may be why the Gemara says this happens to Sadiqim. It doesn't happen to everybody. This is not a description of universal infertility. Sadiqim, who will pray for, uh, for children, and the prayer will have this effect on them to focus them in the appropriate way. So God makes them infertile in order to achieve the focus that they need. But, by extension, that applies to all of us. That. We pray in order to focus ourselves so as to use what we're, what we're asking for if we get it in the appropriate way. Yeah. You could argue that a Sadiqim doesn't need that focus. Okay, you asked that. Uh, you could argue that Sadiqim don't need that focus because they already have it. I think the, I was thinking of it as, as I was speaking. I think the correct answer is this. Life with Sadiqim is not easier than for us. The Gemara says everyone who's bigger than his friend has an evil inclination bigger than that of his friend. And we have in the Tanakh enough cases of parents who got it wrong, including Abraham, who got it wrong with respect to Ishmael, and Isaac, who got it wrong with respect to Esau, and Jacob, who got it wrong with respect to Joseph, that great, great tzaddikim can make mistakes in, um, in, in their parenting. So, prayer to help them orient themselves in the, in the, in the best way is certainly av- av- advisable for everybody. Yeah. Well, and would you also say, uh, you know, a tzaddik who, you know, a tzaddik who doesn't ever bear children, that God would enjoy his prayer, that enjoy his prayers more because he never, he never answers it. I mean, keep that. Fo- I mean, because there are there are great rabbis who never, who never. Okay, answer. this is a very important question. You are asking, what about the prayers of those great people, those tzaddikim who never have children? Okay, I was going to say this at the end, and maybe I'll repeat it again t- tomorrow. But since you asked it, it's very important to know that every sincere prayer is answered. Every sincere prayer is answered. Now, it might not be answered right away. It might not be answered in the exact form in which you asked it. It might not be answered for you. It might be answered for your descendants or other people. But every sincere prayer is answered. In the case that you're raising, the case that you're raising, well, um, well you might have has, spiritual correct. Chazal say your, your, your disciples are your children. When it says, you should teach your children, train your children, Chazal say that's referring to, descend, to disciples. Not to biological children, because another verse that talks about teaching your son. So this, this has got to refer to something broader. So a person should understand that every sincere prayer is counted and answered. Only, as I said, I, I heard this name in the stipler, and then I saw it more recently in the, brought down in the name of the Shlo, which means it goes back 
more than th- about 300 years, and it's um, the Slaw and the Stipler are very important sources. Okay, you with me? What other scenario, other than having biological children? Yeah. Well, as I said to, said to him just a moment ago, he could have uh, disciples. When the Gemara calls children disciples, disciples are also counted as children. Replace the biological children? Replace the biological Right, so I said, listen, I, again, I said every prayer is answered. It might not be answered right away. It might not be answered in the exact form that you asked for it. Right? So, you asked for children. But disciples are a form of children. How the Torah calls them children? Calls them banecha. So, if you ask for children, it would be very fair to say, I'm, telling, I'm answering you in the way that the Torah describes children. Describes it as describes, describes disciples as children. Right? Or some other way that we don't appreciate. Okay, but no sincere prayer uh, is, is, it goes without, uh, without being being actually fulfilled. Okay, I've taken things out of order now. But all right, let, let that suffice for now. Now this idea that you should ask for something in order to serve God better, this idea solves a number of problems, a number of famous outstanding problems. For one, in, in the morning and evening prayers, we say the Shema and then we pray. And you're not allowed to interrupt. You have to go straight in from one to the other. Why is that? Historically, prayer and Shema are not related at all. Shema goes back to Moses. Our organized prayers started a thousand years after Moses. The men of the Great Assembly at the beginning of the Second Temple period According to almost all authorities, prayer is only rabbinic. It's altogether only rabbinic. Maimonides stands out as the one who said that prayer could be biblical. But for him, the biblical prayer would be once a day, at any whatever time. There's no intrinsic connection, legally, between Shema and prayer. And that being the case, why should Chazal have seen fit to connect them legally that you introduce, you say Shema twice a day, that's the introduction to the prayer of that time, and there shouldn't be any break between them. Given what I've told you, it's really hand in glove. Because when you say the Shema, you're accepting God as your king. You're declaring, I am your servant. And then you walk into prayer saying, since I'm your servant, I'm asking for X, Y, Z. Because XYZ will enable me to serve you better. So Shema turns out now to be the perfect introduction to prayer. The perfect preparation for prayer. So you can see why Chazal would link the two together. You with me? Okay, another thing. There is an intimate relationship between prayer and the sacrifices. And here I must describe it to you carefully because there's a lot of misinformation about this. Many people think that prayers were invented to replace the missing sacrifices. 
Indeed, some people will quote the Guide of the Perplexed to say that really prayer is a step up. We're better off with prayer and not having sacrifices. Spiritually, it's an advance. This is absolute nonsense. <clears throat> there are several reasons why it's absolute nonsense. First of all, the men of the Great Assembly created our order of prayer just before the beginning of the Second Temple. Prayer and sacrifices existed side by side for 420 years. So it's simply not true that the prayers were invented to replace the missing sacrifices. Prayers were invented to accompany the sacrifices. Indeed, the Gemara in Brachos, which describes this connection, says, Tfilos keneged karbonos tiknum. The rabbis established the prayers corresponding to the sacrifices. Now it's true, in the Shulchan Aruch, in the Code of Jewish Law, it says that the prayers replace the sacrifices. Bimkom. Rabbi Yosef Karo changed the word from the Gemara. Gemara said, Keneget, a corresponding to, and he changed it to Bimkom, in place of. But what he means is this. I'll give you an example. You are part of a football team with 11 members, and you have a game scheduled. And you show up to the game, and only nine of your people show and the other team says, well, do you want to play 11 against 9? Are your 9 willing to play in place of the whole 11? And you might say, yes, <laughs> we're a much better team. You know, we can take you on. 9 to 11, no problem. What does it mean the 9 should play in place of the 11? The 9 is a subset of the 11. It means 9 instead of the whole 11. doesn't mean something entirely separate. What Rabbi Sotkaro is saying is this. Prayers and sacrifices form an, an integrated whole that's supposed to do a certain job. Now that we don't have the sacrifices, the prayers have to do the whole job before they cooperated together with the sacrifices to do the job. Now they have to do the whole job. So Rabbi Sotkaro is not contradicting the Gemara and he's not even really changing the Gemara. The Gemara is talking about the motivation of the... Of the, of the introduction of prayers when it was originally made. It was originally made to accompany the sacrifices. For us, we don't have the sacrifices, we have to see the prayers as doing double duty. Furthermore, all of this is based on a much older source, which certainly contradicts this misunderstanding. There's a verse in Isaiah. The verse in Isaiah says, I will bring them to my holy mountain and I will cause them to rejoice in my house of prayer. Their sacrifices shall be pleasing upon the altar for my house shall be called the house of prayer for all peoples. And that verse is very challenging. That verse is very challenging. Listen to it again. I'm, I'm sliding over some of the details in the verse. But this, this is the part that I want. I will bring them to my holy mountain and cause them to rejoice in my house of prayer. Which house of prayer is that? That's the temple. As it goes on to say, their sacrifices will be pleasing upon my altar. 
So we're talking about the place where sacrifices are, are offered, and that's the temple. For my house, will we call the house of prayer for all peoples. Twice the verse calls the temple the house of prayer, and in the verse itself it talks about offering sacrifices there. So apparently the place where you offer sacrifices can be entitled the house of prayer. So to see prayer as something that was invented to replace the law of sacrifices is absurd. Yeah. But if, if the prayer, you know, if, the pra- if, if, if when we say prayer, we're speaking of Shemona Esrei, and, you know, of course Isaiah predated the Great Assembly, so what, what is he talking about? Okay. Um, I think what he means is that the two are really identical in essence, and I'll get there in about 12 minutes. That, that is the next thing that I have to discuss. Now, I've proved, uh, just a, a little logical footnote, there's a big difference between a proof and an explanation. I can prove something to you, or you can hear a proof, which establishes something is true, but that may give you no clue as to why it's true. It happens in mathematics all the time, or even in science. I've given you sources which prove that prayer and sacrifices go hand in hand. But it's not obvious why that is true, and even worse, one could raise an objection to the idea philosophically. Let's think in very general terms about flow. Direction of flow. Which way is the flow going? In prayer, I told you the essence of prayer is petition, requesting things from God. So, it would seem, the flow there goes from God to us. Sacrifices, whatever they are, is a flow from us to God. So, it looks like these two performances, these two institutions, are expressing opposed ideas. To say that they express opposed ideas and yet they're integrated into one whole, you could do it with your back to the wall, you know, but it would be quite extravagant. It would be much nicer if the flow would be both in one direction. Now, given what I've told you, the flow is in one direction. Let's imagine you work for IBM. And you're you're creating uh, computer models of various things. You go to your supervisor and you say, listen, I'm working on this project with these models. And I have such and such a computer. It's old computer and it's slow. And it crashes from time to time. If you'll give me a better computer, I'll turn out better work. Faster. More complete work. Please give me a better computer. Now, if they answer in the affirmative, they give them a better computer, who's going to benefit? Well, ultimately, IBM is going to benefit, right? He's paid to do a job, and he'll do a better job. You know, when they pay you to do a job, your salary is less than the profit you earn for them. Otherwise, they wouldn't hire you, right? So if you do a better job, they're going to get more profit. They're going to get the profit from it. So giving you the superior tool is an investment in their profits. So when you ask for a tool to serve God better, the real flow that you are discussing, describing, addressing, focusing on, is a flow from you to God, not a flow from God to you. That's why you can express yourself as a servant even though you're asking for something. You're not a stranger asking for charity. You're a servant asking for a better tool to do a better job. So the subject in both cases is the flow from you to God. That's how the two can be integrated into one performance. But it's even deeper than that. It's even deeper than that. 
The Gemara Rosh Hashanah says that the world is judged on four occasions. On Pesach, it's judged concerning the produce of the field. On Shavuos, concerning the fruits of the trees. Okay, I'm reading it now according to the Bryce and the Gemara. All right, let's say the Mishnah. The Mishnah. On Rosh Hashanah, all creatures are judged. And on Sukkot, it's judged with respect to water. The Mishnah takes it in chronological order like that. Water. That's why you have the water libation on the altar on, on, on Sukkot, because the, the world is being judged with respect to how much water it's going to get. Now, Rabbi Akiva in the Gemara explains the Mishnah as follows. Each of the three holidays has a specific offering. And the offering corresponds to what is being judged. On Pesach, you have the Omer offering of barley in the second day because the grains are being judged. So you take a sample of grain and offer it in the temple so that there will be a blessing on the grain. On Shavuos, the Shteyalechem, which you offer, so there will be a blessing on the fruit. On Sukkot, water is being judged, so you pour out a libation of water on the altar, so that the waters of the year shall be blessed. And on Rosh Hashanah, says Rabbi Akiva, we pray. Now, the deep question here is this. Rabbi Akiva has four items. The three holidays and Rosh Hashanah. For the three holidays, he's giving us a formula. When X is being judged, take a sample of X, offer it as a sacrifice, so as to be able to get a blessing on X, the category of X. Right? Rosh Hashanah, he says, we should pray. Is Rosh Hashanah following the formula or breaking the formula? <laughs> the longest one I said here, yes, indeed. <coughs> Say again? If, if it would be, it would be saying the prayer, sh- prayer should be blessed. The pr- if it would be. Well, but it's more than that. What's being judged on Rosh Hashanah? The world. Everything. Each creature is being judged on Rosh Hashanah. So let's apply the formula. Formula says if X is being judged, then we should take a sample of X and. Offer it as a sacrifice so as to get a blessing on X. If human beings are judged, then we ought to have human sacrifice. Right? That's what the formula says. And Rabbi Kiva says, pray. Now, is he following the formula or breaking the formula? Well, obviously, prayer is synonymous with sacrifice. Correct. Prayer is synonymous with sacrifice. That's exactly right. He's following the formula. He's not breaking the formula. In prayer, you're offering yourself to God. Okay, we're not talking about cutting throats and pouring out blood. But you're offering yourself to God. This is the deep identity of essence that you have between prayer and sacrifice. In both cases, something's being offered up to God. So the integrated institution of prayer works like this. In Jerusalem, there's a temple, and they offer sacrifices every day. Now, once a year, there's a tax. I paid my tax. So every sacrifice that's offered in that temple has my name on it. Because I paid my half shekel in Adar, that accounts for the whole year. I can sleep till noon. I live in Tiberia. I can sleep till noon. 
No problem. They offered to sacrifice at 9 o'clock. I'm there because I paid my taxes. Said Chazal, that's not enough. That's not enough. The whole of the nation has to consciously participate in the sacrifice. True, I'm not a Kohen. I can't go there. I can't actually physically involve myself. But since prayer is self-sacrifice and the animals offered in the temple are for the sake of this Jewish, the Jewish nation, when we pray at the time when they're offering the sacrifices in the temple, it's an act of national sacrifice. Because prayer, the utterance of prayer, is the sacrifice of the person to God. Okay, so this idea of prayer, of the, of the petition in prayer, being asking for God for, for means to be able to serve Him, explains a great deal of how prayer works. You with me so far? Now, at this point, we ought to ask a, uh, a question on what we've said. This will be my last point for today. Um, okay. God, please give me the 2007 Porsche. Why? Because I li- um, No, not because I like it. Let's see, what was the reason? Oh, yes, because on rainy days, when there'll be the yeshiva students standing at the bus stop out in the cold and the rain, I'll pick them up and I'll drive to the yeshiva and they'll enjoy the leather seats and the, and the quadraphonic sound and the climate control. You know, they'll look at the GPS monitor and have a, have a good time. I, I really want to do this just for your glory and just for your service, right? How do I know... How do I know that that's what's going to happen? How do I know that myself, if I get it, that this is what I'm going to do with it? I mean, it's easy to fool oneself. Wouldn't it be more cautious, more conservative to say to God, look, you know what I need. You know what I will really use in your service. Please give me whatever I really need. Why should I go out on a limb and specify? And our prayers are not structured that way. Our prayers have all sorts of categories that we ask for in, in, in particular. And we are encouraged to add in, some say verbally, some say in thought, but at least in thought, to add in our own particular requests that come under those categories. Why are we taking this risk? Here, if we go back to the beginning where we started today, we'll have a nice answer to this question. Um, it's based on a statement of the Chazanish in his Sefer Emunu Bitochon, Faith and Trust. The Chazanish paints a picture like this. I'm standing next to a lake. Out in the lake, there's a solitary person in a boat. Suddenly, the boat goes over, he falls into the lake, the boat drifts away, and he yells, I'm drowning, I'm drowning! I look around. I don't swim. And there are no other boats. There isn't even a log that I could throw out to him that he could hold on to. There's nobody around for me to yell to. It's just the two of us out here in the forest ourselves. Now, suppose I say to myself, okay, there's nothing I can do to help. (coughs) There's nothing I can do to try to save him. So I'll pray. Says the Chazanish, that's a terrible mistake. Given what we said, that's a terrible mistake. Why is it a mistake? Why is it a mistake to say there's nothing I can do to help, so I'll pray? Because, the well, okay, a little softer, but that's the idea. Prayer is a way of helping him. Remember, the purpose of a request is to change the world. 
The purpose of a request is to get what you're asking for. Now, there's no guarantee. There's no guarantee that you'll get it. But on the other hand, there certainly is the possibility that God will hear the prayer and he'll be saved. But if you could throw him around... Okay, so not... Okay, you're asking, but if you had practical means to, to go after him, shouldn't you do that? Yes, if you have practical means, listen carefully, if you have practical means to, to help him, you should then do both. Why should you give up any practical means? As you're throwing him the rope, direct the prayer heavenward that God should make you successful. Then you're using two means rather than one. Remember that the means, that prayer is a means of changing the world. Prayer is a practical way of changing the world. Okay, having that insight firmly ensconced in our brains, now let's ask ourselves, how do we make decisions to change the world? How do we make such decisions? Let's say a person is working at a job which is 50 hours a week, $100,000 a year. And he's offered a 40-80 job. 40 hours, 80000 offered a 4080, he's got to make a decision. Stay with the old job or take the new job. If he's a person who lives his life trying to serve God, he asks himself, with which job can I serve God better? <clears throat> Do I need the extra money? What are the 10 extra hours a week cost me in terms of my life? Let's suppose, on the basis of his own reflection and his consultation with others, advice, he decides that the 4080 job is better. Okay, if he would decide, when offered the 4080 job, that the 4080 job is better, couldn't he have reviewed his circumstances, which is a relevant thing to do every six months or so, review where I am in life, what's going on, what my activities are, challenges, options, and ask, maybe my life could be improved by a shift, by a move, by a change. Couldn't he have reflected on his own, I'm working 5,000, 4080 would be better. I don't see any reason why he can't. If he could make the decision when challenged with the choice, he could certainly figure it out on his own. Okay, figuring it out on his own, he will contact his friends and uh, neighbors and he'll put his name up on bulletin boards and he'll send emails to people and so on and so on. So as to be able to find such a job. How does he have the confidence to take all those decisions? Why did he set himself to change jobs? Why would he decide the 4080 job when it was offered? Because he evaluates his circumstances and decides what conditions will lead to the best service of God. That kind of decision is made by people all the time, every day. God put us into circumstances where we have to make those decisions. Once upon a time, it wasn't that way. When prophecy existed, Prophecy was very widespread. From Moses to the beginning of the Second Temple, about a thousand years, there were a million two hundred thousand prophets. Six hundred thousand men and six hundred thousand women. So it says the Gemara Megillah and Megillah Sarus and Megillah Shirashir. Every Jew knew prophets. Every Jew came into contact with prophets. The Ramban says during that period, no Jew ever went to a doctor. Why would you go to a doctor? Your physical condition is only a symptom of your spiritual condition. You have a physical problem, you go to the prophet and say, what does God want me to do? And he would tell you and you'd fix it. Only when we lost prophecy did we go to doctors. So, if you wanted to know, what does God want from me? How should I change my conditions to better serve this God? 
I can go to a prophet and ask. It isn't that way anymore. God has cast us adrift in this respect. We don't have a pipeline to genuine, perfect information about what we should do. So we make the best decisions that we can. Now, if I can make the decision to alert my friends and acquaintances and to put my name up on the bulletin boards and to uh, advertise my availability, then I can certainly make the same decision to pray because praying is just another one of the ways to try to get it. If I'm justified in all the other practical means of trying to get it, then I'm justified in praying for it. Prayer is just another practical means to get what I need in order to be able to serve God. So it's built into the nature of prayer that we should be able to decide what to pray for. Of course, as the question assumed correctly, our decision is fallible. We should try to be as careful, as cautious, and as, as deep in our, in, our, in our decisions what to pray for as we can. But uh, we shouldn't... Re- um, we shouldn't restrict ourselves on the grounds that we might make a mistake. Life is like that. One might make a mistake. And um, that's not a reason not to, not to try. Okay? One final footnote. Rav Shantifah Hirsch says that the verb to pray in Hebrew, lehispalel, literally means to judge oneself. Tulim are judges. Lispalel means it's reflexive. So it means to judge oneself. When I read that many years ago, I was also just flabbergasted. Okay, I hear the grammar, but what's it got to do with prayer? (laughs) How does it fit in? Where are you judging yourself in prayer? Given what I have told you, it's gold. Since I have to decide what's really good for me, what really will help me serve God best, that decision requires considerable self-analysis. So one does have to judge oneself to come to it the best judgment one can make as to what one really needs. That being the case, Rav Hirsch's comment makes a great deal of sense. Okay, this is an elaboration of the second level of petition. Tomorrow, we'll talk about the third level of petition. There's a third level that goes beyond these two levels, and we'll talk about other applications. Any question? How does this problem mean to judge oneself? Palal. You, you understand Hebrew grammar a little bit? Okay, so... Palal is the, is, the, is the root, the three-letter root. Palal means to judge. At least that's one of its meanings. Plilim, which is based on the same, uh, same root, means judges. Now, the lehis at the beginning means to do it to yourself. So palal means judge. This palal then means to judge oneself. Uh, I mean, in modern Hebrew, the plilaz is criminal. It's, uh, I think that's right. But there's no sambe flilim. It says, in, in, I think, uh, it says, in the certain conditions, you'll pay, you make the payment according to what the judges tell you that you have to, uh, have to do. This is part two of how prayer works. Yesterday, we were talking about petition, requesting things from God on the grounds that these are the things I need to be able to serve him. And we explained that reciting Shema is an appropriate introduction to such a petition because in the Shema you accept God as your king. 
and that it's really an act of offering yourself in sacrifice to God. That's why there's a correspondence between prayer and sacrifices. We mentioned yesterday in demonstrating that prayer is an act of sacrifice a Gemara Rosh Hashanah where Rabbi Kiva says that the three major festivals of the year <coughs> there is a special offering on each of them once a year and the rule was that at a time when X is being judged a sample of X should be offered to God and the result will be a blessing on that category. Grains on Pesach, fruit on Shavuos, water on Sukkot. On Rosh Hashanah, we pray, and we said that was an application of the formula that we're offering ourselves to God in prayer. But I didn't explain how using, uh, how performing the offering on the one hand and the blessing that's supposed to be the result on the other hand are related. Explanation found in the Ramban. And this is absolutely fundamental in terms of Jewish concepts in general and also what you think you're accomplishing when you pray. The concept of blessing, says the Ramban, is always an expansion of a pre-existing foundation. Blessing is never ex nihilo, yesh me'ayin, something from nothing. There has to be a pre-existing foundation to which the blessing applies by expanding it. We learn this from a famous incident in the Tanakh. A widow came to Elisha and said to him, I'm penniless. She happened to be the widow of Ovadi the prophet. She and her husband protected prophets against Ahav and Izevel who wanted to kill them, hid them, fed them, protected them. She said, I'm penniless and the creditors are coming to take away my house and my children, which was of course illegal, but that's what was going to happen anyhow. And she asks for help. Alicia says to her, what do you have at home? And she says, all I have is a little container of oil. <coughs> so Alicia says, go home, borrow vessels from your neighbors, and then bring them into your house with your children, close the doors, take your container of oil, and pour it into the big vessels that you will have. So she goes home, and she does that. Borrows barrels and pots and pails, closes the door and fills all of those vessels with the oil. Comes back to Elisha and says, what should I do now? He says, sell the oil and pay your creditors and live on the rest. Esther Ramban, this woman must have been very special. She merited an open miracle. What's the use of the oil? Why not tell her, go home and you'll find a gold brick under your bed? Okay, the Ramban didn't say a gold brick. I'm saying that. But what is the, why is this the mechanism? And says the Ramban, because the mechanism of blessing is always to expand, to increase something that pre-exists. So it has to be something that's already there. Yes, so what do you have at home? 
Now, let's push this, uh, this case. Imagine her standing there. She's got a two-ounce container of oil. She's standing in front of a barrel that holds 50 gallons. She starts to pour. What does she expect is going to happen? That the two ounces of oil in her little container is going to form a thin film of oil on the bottom of the, of the barrel? No. She trusts God. She trusts God's prophet. And she believes that this little two-ounce container of oil is going to fill the barrel. And it does. It means she's taking this oil, this little two ounces, and by her trust in God and trust in his prophet, she is spiritualizing it. She's elevating it from the physical to the spiritual. And because she spiritualizes it, that's why blessing applies to her. Blessing, after all, is a power that comes from a spiritual realm. It doesn't come from the physical realm. You have to make contact. You make contact by taking an item and spiritualizing it, then the power of blessing can apply to it and it can increase. And that's the idea of the three sacrifices that I made in the three major festivals. And that, says Rabbi Kiva, is what's going on in prayer. A human being offers himself to God. He makes himself a vehicle for blessing. His powers, his abilities, and his resources will expand because he spiritualized himself. That's an inner dimension of what's going on in prayer. Maybe we close the windows. I think it's warm enough. Now, this concept is the meaning of one of the blessings in prayer. We've studied the context of prayer quite carefully over the last few weeks. I'll just remind you that on page 111, after we finished all of the formal petitions, we're into the third from last blessing. It says, Ritzay. Really, it's accept in favor, Hashem, our God, your people, Israel, and their prayer. The word Ritzay in Hebrew connotes accepting an offering. And it refers to prayer, particularly. When the temple stood, it also referred to the offerings of the temple as well. Now that the temple is not standing, it prays for the restoration of the temple. But here, prayer is being designated as a sacrifice. The word Ritzay means that it's offered as a sacrifice. And that's the concept that we've been explaining. Okay, you with me? And before I move on to the next level of petition, I want to look with you at the previous blessing. On 109, that's also we did, those of you who were here past week, but I'll remind you, we ask God for a variety of things. Wisdom, help in repentance, forgiveness, being saved from our local enemies, health, healing, material support, and then the blessings for national redemption. A whole long list of particular items that we ask God for. 
And then we say, <coughs> Hear our voice, Hashem, our God, pity, be compassionate to us, and accept with compassion and favor our prayer. From before yourself, our King, turn us not away empty-handed. Don't turn us away empty-handed. Now, this could appear to be redundant, almost insulting. The analogy that's given is <coughs> a king offered a minister of his three wishes because of his great service. And the minister said, first of all, I want a palace. The king said, granted. Second of all, I want a month's vacation. Granted. And the third request I have, said the minister, is that you should fulfill the first two requests. But that's wasted. It's just wasted. Why should we, after all of the specific requests, say to God, and by the way, one more thing, don't turn us away empty-handed. What does that mean, other than give us what we asked for? So I explained then that there are two levels to any request. And you can see it from the following um, example. You need $50. You go to a close friend and you say, please, I'm, I'm short $50. Can you give me or lend me $50? And he says to you, $50 for you? Absolutely not. Forget it. So you walk outside. When you hit the sidewalk, right in front of you is a $50 bill. Psh, look at that. You pick it up, and you have your $50. Is everything okay now? No, sorry, because your friend said no. That also is important. You went to your friend because you trusted him, because you relied upon him, and he said no. Every request has two dimensions, at least. One is the thing I'm asking for, and what I need it for. The other is the one whom I'm asking. And my relationship with that one whom I'm asking. So when I come before God, I say, listen, here's a whole long list of things I need. Hopefully we're on the second level where I'm asking for what he will, what will enable me to serve him best. And then I add, and also, I need your um, response as a confirmation of our relationship. That I know that you care about me. That I know that we're connected. And this can be another reason for God to answer my prayer. This goes back in a way to the more primitive level of, of petition. It's similar anyway. Not because of what I'm going to do with the item that I'm uh, asking for, but simply because I asked. I asked and I trusted in you and I believed in you. And that has to be reinforced as well in addition to whatever I might be using the particular item for. Okay? One other thing I want to pick up from yesterday. If you go back and, li and listen to the recording, I said, when we come to the part of the prayer that's gratitude, we thank God for what we receive. I used the present tense. I didn't say for what we have received, but for what we receive. The Gemara says something that was, for me, for a long time, very challenging. It says, when you come to the gratitude expression, 
you should be like a servant who has presented his requests of his master and has already had them granted. This is not gratitude for the past. Look, I came before you now and I asked you for X, Y, Z. And I know that six years ago you gave me ABC. Thanks for six years ago. That's not the idea. Although that's why I used to believe it. That's why I used to understand it. Or maybe I should say misunderstand it. No, you should, you should be, thank God as if you have gotten what you've asked for right away. That he's granted you now what you asked for now. Well, as we all know, unless the circumstances are very unusual, it isn't realistic. I'm asking for help. Usually when you pray, you don't get healthy immediately. Even if you do get healthy, it's not immediate. Or monetary support, or who knows what. But here is where you have an expression of what I told you yesterday. That every sincere prayer is answered. Every sincere prayer is answered. Okay, you might not see it right away. And it might not be answered in the way that you particularly asked. It might be answered in some other way. But what you have to understand is that by uttering a sincere prayer, you have made a change. Your circumstances are different. The world's circumstances are different. And new positive energy has been created. And it will show itself sooner or later under one circumstance or another. So, a definite positive response to your prayer has been recorded. And that's why you can utter gratitude immediately. Not just on the distant past. Yeah. Is that assuming sincerity and kavana? Yes, it is assuming sincerity and kavana. I think that's right. Without that, you can't assume that it's been answered. Indeed, imagine that uh, you've been accused falsely of a crime. And there's a court hearing. And you are given an opportunity to defend yourself. Could you imagine coming before the judge and presenting your case and getting distracted? And uh, sort of forgetting where you are, and, you know, getting. I wonder what the baseball scored. Oh, what? Uh, uh, where was I? Uh, I don't think that would not, not likely to happen, right? What do you mean? <laughs> it's this or jail. <laughs> you're going to pay very close attention to what you're doing. Now, if you come before God and you don't have Kavani saying the words, God says, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're certainly not serious about this. I mean, you, you don't take it seriously. Let's see, what God gives you is it's commensurate with how much kavana you have, how much intention, how much intensity in your prayer. Um, let's put it this way. You used, a, you used an interesting word, uh, a, a very, um, I'd say, uh, accurate in its weakness, commensurate. Commensurate can be, even if it depends also on many other factors, Commensurate just means the more kavana you have, the more you'll get. That's true. It may be that because of other factors, there's a ceiling set on how much you can get. Or it may be that because of other factors, there's a floor below which you can't sink. And there may be other factors where if you double your kavana, you get ten times as much. Commensurate just means more gets more and less gets less. It's very unspecific, the idea of commensurate. And being unspecific in that way, I think yes. The, the more sincere the prayer is, the more kavana you invest in the prayer, then the more will come. But that's not the only fact that will determine the amount that comes. So you 
Okay, you ask if you have perfect kavana, perfect sincerity, you get everything that you, that you ask for. Let, let's, I, I, I'm glad you asked me. We should elaborate this a little bit. Moses prayed to go into the land of Israel. How many times did he pray? Huh? I guess. No, nobody knows. It's the gematria of Boeschanan. The word Boeschanan means to I supplicated God. And the gematria, the numerical value of that word is 515. He offered 515 prayers to go into the land of Israel. After which God said, No! <laughs> You're not going in. We have to assume that Moses' prayers were sincere. Right? A sincerity that we can't even imagine. So, what I told you before, that every sincere prayer is answered, but maybe not in the way that you intended or thought and maybe not to you, but to your descendants, or right, that has to be taken into account. And that can't be, you can't overcome those limitations simply by the sincerity of the prayer. By the way, one of the scholars of a couple of hundred years ago made an interesting calculation. According to when God told Moses that he's not going to the land of Israel, to the day of his death, if you calculate the number of prayers on the basis of praying three times a day, taking into account Shabbos and holidays and all the rest, comes out to be exactly 515 prayers. Which means he didn't invent 515 different prayers, but in each of the regular 515 prayers between the time of the decree and his death, that was part of the content of his prayer. That's a very, very interesting observation. Because the regular prayers give us greater access, greater contact, and so to speak, greater leverage with God than other prayers that we would utter uh, under other conditions. After all, if you pray with a minion, then you have a special, a special leverage, special access to God. Um, if it's part of the uh, daily, the, the prayers that are, are the, the set prayers, then they integrate with the sacrifices. person pops into his head, you know, two in the afternoon, Taught a prayer to God. It's not a bad thing to do. But it doesn't have the same significance. It doesn't have the same effect as one of the regular prayers. So the idea that there are exactly 515 in between is very, very interesting. Yeah. But what about for the millions of people who, who pray from the book and don't understand most of the words that they're saying? I mean, they have a great covenant, but it might be more meaningful for someone who, who speaks English much better than they speak Hebrew to say something in the middle of the day Okay, you're asking, uh, I'm repeating it for the tape, otherwise they don't know what you're You're asking maybe a, a sincere, meaningful prayer that you understand in your native language may have more effect than reciting the silent prayer together with the minion in Hebrew that you don't understand. Okay, so first of all, I have to tell you something that's very important to know. You're standing together with the congregation in shul and you're praying. If you pray in English, you have satisfied the mitzvah of prayer. Even then, you could say that. I just want to ask you all in English. You don't have to say it in Hebrew. The surprise is that if you say it in Hebrew that you don't understand, you have also satisfied your obligation. Also, also. But for sure, if you say it in English, you have satisfied your obligation to pray. 
And the extra meaning that you get from it being the service of the heart, and when you pray in English, means that given your options, you're probably better off praying in English. But the truth is a little more, a little more um, uh, encouraging than that. Especially for you, being that you are so young, there's no reason to put up with either of them. Here's what I suggest. Take a pencil, and in your sitter, over the first line of Hebrew words, write in, in pencil, the meaning of each word. Yes, it is permissible to write in the sitter. No problem. And say the first line in Hebrew, looking at the English words. Do that for, let's say, three prayers. By that time, you'll probably know what they mean. Then erase them, and write in pencil over the next line of prayers. And do that for another three. Inside of two months, you'll be saying the whole thing, and you'll know, you'll know what every word means, especially since a lot of the words repeat, right? Boruch is there a lot of times. Atta is there a lot of times, right? <laughs> you get used to that, you don't have to see it over and over again. Right? Within a month or two, you'll be able to say the whole thing and know what you're saying. There's no reason to put up with either saying in English or saying in Hebrew that you don't understand. Right? You should undertake an active... Now, you know, you get the interlinear or the ones like the art scroll, which is very good. It's printed over the page and you don't... You're not forced to focus in that way. If you write it in and say it and then erase it, that I think is a good, uh, a good strategy for, for getting to that point. But by all means, in the meantime, say it in English. Okay, but that's on this level of petition where you're asking God for means to be able to serve him better. There's a third level. This third level is very exalted. I don't know how many of us could aspire to it even on occasion, but because we're doing a philosophical overview of prayer, we need to mention it because it's at least a concept of prayer could happen that on occasion one would be inspired to get to that level as well. Um, there's a famous statement uh, by the Nefeshachayim. What does it mean to fear transgression? What does it mean to fear transgression? Does it mean that if I transgress I'll be punished? I'm afraid of the punishment? No. Of course Punishment is real, and one should be afraid of it, but that's not the essential, ideal fear of transgression. Is it that if I transgress, I'm setting up a distance between God and me, or I should say between me and God? That's also a true consequence, but that is not the real fear of transgression. Is it that I blemish my soul when I perform a transgression, that's also a true consequence of transgression, but that's not the essential fear of transgression. The essential fear of transgression is this, to understand that transgression hurts God. It hurts God. And to be in a position where I can't I can't abide. I can't stand the thought of hurting God. To what is this similar? I'll give you a crude analogy. I mean, the Nefesh Chaim's idea is an exalted idea. I'll give you a crude analogy. Imagine that you are connected via an electrical circuit to an 18-month-old baby. And every bite of the McDonald's bacon cheeseburger 
sends a jolt of electricity through that baby. And that baby screams. And you can see and hear the baby screaming. Could you eat the cheeseburger? Not if you're normal. Not if you're not a psychopath. Because the screaming of the baby and knowing that your bite causes him to scream, you wouldn't be able to do it. Now you have to imagine a person, says the Nebuchadnezzar, who's so involved with the Shekhinah, with God's presence, that he understands and he envisions that every time he performs the transgression, he's causing the Shekhinah to scream. And he can't do that. He just can't do it. That's his description of fear of transgression. Now, I want to take that idea and just flip it to the positive side and use it for prayer. Here's a positive expression of the idea, and then I'll finally bring it to prayer. Imagine, little eight-year-old Ruvain comes in one afternoon, winter afternoon, sun is set, his mother says to him, Ruvain, what would you like for supper? And Ruvain thinks to himself, what would I like for supper? My mother loves it when I eat and enjoy the food. My mother is Jewish. So, let's see. What do I like? I like steak and potatoes. So, I'll ask her for steak and potatoes because I will really enjoy the steak and potatoes and she will have great pleasure from my enjoyment. She says to her, Mom, how about steak and potatoes? She says, steak and potatoes. Half an hour. Half an hour later, she comes to the table. There they are. Takes a bite. Says, oh, Mom, that's great. That's delicious. And she's cavelling. Yes, eat, eat. (laughs) Eat, my son, eat. (laughs) He finishes, Mom, could I have seconds? Yes, yes, seconds, have seconds. Eat, eat. This, this scenario has played itself out millions of times. Right? <laughs> so, uh, what's going on here? He's asking for steak and potatoes, which are items that he really likes. He really does get pleasure in them. But why does he want to get the pleasure? He wants to get the pleasure because he knows his mother will enjoy his pleasure. So, he's asking for something that's really his desire, under other conditions, I would say, is good for him. Is good for him. But the reason he wants to, the reason he's asking for what he desires is because his mother will have pleasure from his getting what he desires. Now, let's put that into prayer. person says, I'm worried, I'm upset, I'm concerned, I'm deprived, I'm lacking various things. God shares my experience. Like the verse says, Imo anochi Referring to the Jewish people, God says, I'm with you in, uh, in, with him. I'm with the Jewish people in pain. God shares the pain of the Jewish people. So a person says, God, I'm in pain. And I know that because I'm in pain, you're also in pain. I don't want you to be in pain. Please take away my pain, my worry, my deprivation, my anxiety, so that you won't be in that state. That's an extraordinary consciousness to arrive at. And that would be the highest level of petition. And there, there, as we said yesterday, the motivation for God to answer is because 
this person defines himself only as something of God's concern. That's his own definition, his own essence. Because you're concerned with me, that's why I want to be relieved of what's bothering me, so that you won't have that concern. Now, if you think about the three levels of petition, you see that there's a progression. A progression of uh, divesting us oneself of one's ego, one's own self-focus, and focusing more on God. In the first case, give me the Porsche. Oh, I was, uh, did I say Porsche yesterday? Yeah, that's the car that I usually talk about. Right, give me the Porsche because I'm going to enjoy it. My only recognition of God is that he has the keys to the warehouse. He has the power, so I'm asking him. But I want the car only for my own use, only for my own benefit. In the second case, I exist in order to serve him. So I ask for better materials with which to serve him. But still there are two. There are two. I am an independent entity. I ask myself what my options are. There's nothing better for me to do. There's nothing greater for me to do than to serve him. So I will do the greatest thing I can do, which makes me great, which is to serve him. And the third, I'm only there, as I said before, as an object of his concern. My greatness doesn't enter into the picture at all. Not a question of my being great by serving him. As my wife told me many, many years ago, everyone has a picture of the world. That picture has a center. And there are only two candidates for the center. God or you. And you ask yourself, when you meet a person, who's in the center of his picture, you'll learn a lot about the person. It's a fundamental characteristic of people. Who do you put in the center of your picture? Here, the center of the picture is filled by God. And I'm there somewhere in the picture only because he's concerned about me. If he weren't concerned about me, I wouldn't be there at all. This is a God-centered picture. If, you, if one can arrive at that state in prayer, then one has achieved a very great uh, position. That would be the third level of petition. Okay, so we have answered the question that we started with. Why should God pay attention to our petitions? Can we be confident that our petition has some reason, some possibility of changing the reality? Yes, because God has an incentive, so to speak, in terms of what he cares about to answer prayers, even though on various occasions he may not do so because, or directly or immediately because of other considerations, but he has an incentive to answer prayers because of what they mean in terms of our experience and our relationship with him. Yeah. I find that um, asking for certain things, for instance, it's hard to relate that to wanting in order to serve God because often our service of God doesn't depend on, on things like our material, material well-being or even health. Sometimes serve God just as well being poor or hungry. Or okay, let's see. You're saying that uh, asking for material help, material goods or, or health, uh, it's hard to relate that to serving God because even the person with less money or who's not healthy can also serve God. Like now you, you put in the crucial words just as well. You need that for your point. But I, I think we could question that. Let's take, for example, charity. If you really are just making it uh, do, and you just have your, your basic needs, 
then you are very limited in the charity that you can offer to other people. If you have a two-room house and you're already a six-member six family, how many traveling strangers can you put up? There's a definitely a limit. Right? Whereas if you have uh, a five-room house and you're only occupying two of them, then you can show hospitality to quite a number of people. So I, I don't think it's correct that you can uh, do as much service, certainly in the same range of service, with less resources. The person's sick, can't pray with the same concentration, certainly can't learn Torah with the same concentration, finds it difficult to be sensitive and helpful to other people because he is sick. Um, so I... I, I Okay, now, you, now, now I think your, your follow-up question is changing track. Uh, what you're pointing out is that any item could be a two-edged sword. And I think that's right. But that isn't what you said before. What you said before is lacking will not necessarily change how, I, how much I can serve God. That's not true. But now having can be a challenge. Okay, we spoke about this. When I said, how can I trust my judgment that this is what I need? Because it might be bad for me. It might not increase my service of God. And then we said, well, okay, that's true. It might. But then you have to make your judgment as to what to go after in life. You make your judgment based on what you believe will increase your service of God. And we are th- thrown back on our own resources to make such judgments because we haven't got prophecy. So that, I think, is quite correct. But you have to make the best judgment that you can. And uh, you, may, you may find in life that uh, there are certain patterns that repeat themselves. My wife and I have often remark that if we ever come into any extra money unexpectedly, it's usually because there's an unexpected expense coming down the road. You know, in, in, in four weeks or six weeks, some, something happens. And <laughs> at least we can say, thank God we had the money. Right? We didn't have to worry about the money. But, uh, you know, it doesn't sit in the bank account, you know, and earn interest and make things easy. It just <laughs> typically doesn't happen, although anything can change. But uh, you, you get used to certain patterns after a while. Anyway, that's Explaining petition. Now, I want to uh, at least make some remarks about the beginning of prayer, which is, which is praise. We introduce prayer with praise. And I'll remind you of what I've said about praise uh, on occasion. To praise something, to say that it's great, is to make a statement that is supposed to be objectively true. Praise is not an expression of your feeling, of how you feel about it. Praise is a matter of objective evaluation. In particular, and by the way, this is the test of whether something's objective, it could be wrong. It can be simply wrong to say that something's great. Here's my example. You take an Australian Aborigine to Sydney into a basketball uh, court where a professional game is being. Do they play professional basketball in Sydney? No. Anyway, it's a visiting game from America where they have real basketball players. And you're watching them warm up and one of the players makes a jump shot. And the Aborigine is astonished. He turns to you and says, Did you see that? He put the ball into the hoop when his feet were off the floor. I mean, he wasn't even standing on the floor. That's a great shot. And you say to him, listen, calm down, calm down. 
Every high school kid can do that. That's nothing, that's nothing special. Well, you see the game. Maybe there'll be a few great shots in the game, but that's not a great shot. It's wrong to say that's a great shot. It's not a great shot. It's a common shot. Calling something great is a statement of objective fact when it's true, and if it's false, it means it's an objective falsehood. It's not just expressing how you feel. If we're just expressing how you feel, then it couldn't be wrong. For those who know a little, I say expressing how you feel. If you describe how you feel, that could be wrong also. But if you express how you feel, it couldn't be wrong. Okay, so what are we doing when we introduce prayer with, when we introduce a petition with three blessings of praise? We are trying to describe certain aspects of God which are inherently great. Now, to say that they're great must be an objective truth, but more than that, to say it's great implies a certain attitude, an attitude of awe, an attitude of smallness in the front of something that is so great. So, to utter praise is to reflect on certain objective facts and to register them experientially. That I'm standing before something that is so great. Someone that is so great. And here you have, I think, the resolution to a, 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 a paradox. We have two mitzvahs. One is to love God and one is to have awe for God. Love means identification, sharing, understanding. You can't love an unknown. You can't love an ex. Awe is distance. Overwhelming greatness. I don't have awe for someone else whose performance I can imitate because that's my performance. I have awe for someone whose performance is so far beyond mine that I couldn't even come close. It's the very distance between him and me that creates the awe. How can you have simultaneously awe and love? Love is sharing, closeness, identification, understanding, and awe is a sense of great distance. I think there's an answer to this question. There are many who who have written about it. One way to answer it is like this. Imagine getting an invitation in the mail to a birthday party. Now, the sender of the invitation could be uh, any one of the following list of people. Could be your plumber. Could be your neighbor. Could be your doctor. Could be the senator from your state. Could be the world's greatest neurosurgeon. Could be the President of the United States. Could be one of the 36 tzaddikim whose lives hold up the universe. Wouldn't the invitation have a very different meaning depending upon who's sending it? Let's imagine it comes from the neurosurgeon. If you appreciate medicine, if you appreciate surgery and the use of science to better people's lives, you will feel honored by the invitation. Wow. Such a person invited me. Suppose you were invited by one of the 36 saints whose lives hold up the whole universe. Say, what? He invited me? He wants me to come to his celebration? The bigger the distance, 
between the one who invites and the recipient of the invitation, the more meaningful and the more um, powerful is the invitation to a relationship. Even though there's such a great distance, he wants me to relate to him. He wants to share with me. He wants to be connected with me and that I should be connected with him. So the distance together with the invitation to a relationship is part of what generates the love. The love is a result of the fact that there's, it starts with distance and then you're invited to relate to and connect to such an august being. Now, prayer is one of those invitations. Prayer is an invitation to step into the throne room and have an audience with the creator of the universe. That's not offered to everyone. When you praise God, and you praise him in terms of his greatness and infinite distance from us, transcendence, but I know that I was invited to come into the throne room to have an audience with such a being. So taking the fact of having the audience together with the praise, I think, creates the closeness that overcomes the distance and creates a sense of love. Is offered to everyone. Well, not exactly, and not exactly in the same. Not exactly in the same way. Not exactly in the same guys. Um, I mentioned this before. And I'll, I'll spell it out now. I guess with this, I'll I'll finish. I said something about praying with a minion, praying the three fixed prayers, as against uttering a spontaneous prayer when the spirit moves you. Which again, I'm not against. It's a good thing to do, but it doesn't it doesn't compare. Prayer with a minion with ten. What's a special a status of a minion? There are those who explain a minion as follows. A minion is a microcosm of the Jewish people. Ten is not just ten individuals. Ten is what I would call an ambassadorial group. Let's imagine that uh, the British ambassador to America calls up Condoleezza Rice and says to her, how about tennis on Sunday? I love to lose at tennis. Because <laughs> she's a whiz. And she says, no, I'm busy. That's one thing. Suppose he says to her, I have a note to deliver to you from my government. And she says, I'm busy. That's a very different matter. The second is a snub of the United States to Great Britain. The first is just refusing a tennis state. Sometimes a person acts on his own as an individual. Sometimes he acts in a certain power, in a certain status. Now, an individual who comes before God to pray, prays as an individual. When you have ten, all of a sudden it's an ambassadorial group. It is the Jewish people in microcosm. And God has a commitment to the Jewish people that he doesn't have to individual Jews. So that, if an individual Jew prays for something, God can, so to speak, put it on hold, respond to it later, not take direct account of it, put it off in favor of other things. If a, a minion comes before God, it gets an entirely different kind of attention. And this is only because God relates to the minion in a different way. You're standing there, 
you may not even know whether there are nine other people or ten other people or, or eight other people. You're praying. Your mind is focused on the words and you're standing before God. It's not a quality of your experience that counts here. It's a quality of who the one who's offering the prayer is. And that is the great advantage of praying together with a minion, even though, as everyone knows, who's committed to praying with a minion, it can be harrowing. They go too fast. They go too slow. This guy says too loud. And, 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 uh, the conditions aren't right. The time isn't right. Quite right. But the significance of it is much changed when you pray together with a minion. Yeah. doesn't matter who's in the minion. Well, as was said before, the quality of the prayer depends upon the attention, the intention and the focus. So, the, the, in general, the more elevated each person's prayer is, the better the prayer of the minion as, a well, as well, as a whole. But this... Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the, the greater a person's performance of mitzvahs is, the better an ear he has from God. And, uh, you know, uh, ten people on very high level will have a different hearing from ten people who aren't at such a high level. But that's independent of the difference between ten and nine. Ten gets you in, you know, to, to uh, the, the box seats. Okay, once you're there, it depends on what you do with the box seats. But you have the, you have the best seats in the house, huh? You have the best seats in the house, yeah. So, but going to what you're saying, though, if it does make a difference to the people, and you're saying that you're basically an emissary to God in that sense, you know, you're like the ambassador of group and you got Hashem sees total truth and he sees everything. So wouldn't it be that ten people from the Jewish people, from any background of Judaism, it doesn't matter as long as they're Jews, approaching God, isn't that more of a true sense of the essence of prayer? And you know, does it have to be ten people for one walk of life? You get what's gonna happen. Uh, let's see if I can make a, a, a good analogy here to make the make the point uh, clear because something's not getting across. Um Imagine, let's take a very simple analogy. Uh, imagine uh, two, two request boxes. There's the urgent request box and the regular request box. And uh, King says, the urgent requests I read as soon as they come in. And the regular requests I read at the end of the day. Well, I sit down and read them all over. But I don't read them right away. And of course, there's somebody outside that says, this is urgent, goes in this box. This is regular, goes in that box. Now, something like that is the way God relates to... Uh, Ten-person request, which is the ambassadorial group, versus an individual. Of course, even the ambassadors can say the wrong thing. Even the ambassadors can say something which is not worthy, not elevated, not focused, not appropriate. The fact that they're ambassadors doesn't mean that their request won't get scrutiny. I might not be delayed, put off, or whatever. But they have a superior standing to be considered. <coughs> That's the difference. So, of course, it'll, it, both things make a difference. Praying together with ten gets you into the urgent box. And then, which ten you pray with gets you an association with a more appropriate formulation, a more appropriate intention, a higher elevation of the ability. And that also helps. Both things help. And one doesn't have to be the exclusion of the other. Yeah. Moses, Moses, uh, you 
kind of plays on his own to God in that situation as opposed to maybe taking some of the other, you know, Sadduqim uh, of the time who weren't involved in, in the sin. Oh, okay. So now, let's see, the golden calf. You see, you're asking for cases in the, in the, in the, in the Torah where, where, where we could see that. Now, of course, it's going to be a little tricky with the golden calf. The people did do tshuva. He made sure of that before he went up to pray. I, if they did tshuva, why do you have to pray for, uh, for a stay of execution? Because tshuva does not guarantee that there won't be an execution. A person who commits a capital crime is expected to do tshuva. We exhort him to do tshuva so that his death will atone for his crime. But that doesn't get you off in this world. So Moses says, number one, they did tshuva. Tshuva implies, it requires asking for forgiveness, all of that. But that's not enough. Every person who's executed by the court does tshuva and asks God for forgiveness before he's executed. Moses wants a stay of execution. That's what he goes and prays for. He, therefore, he, he wasn't part of the crime. So his prayer has a very special status. Whereas they, they're praying... And they'll be the beneficiaries of the prayer. You know, please don't execute us. That's not a very exalted prayer. That's just, I don't want to die. Right? As against Moses, who wasn't, who wasn't involved. But the Gemara says, for example, that if, if, this, if the group, if the group does tshuva, then God responds to it immediately. If the individual does tshuva, he might not respond to it until till the Torah Shoshana Yom Kippur. The group gets uh, a certain access to God's attention and, and concern because it represents the Jewish people as a whole. And he has promised a certain connection to the Jewish people as a whole that he has not promised to individual Jews. 